is here in this place, isn't he? Did you sense it? In the busyness of life, all the tears, the fears, the strife, I have found. You are the only source of comfort and joy. Lord, I want your presence, your witness. I want your presence, your witness. I long to feel your spirit speaking peace to my heart. Of all his gifts I may receive, there's only
Judges chapter 12, verse 1. The Ephraimite forces were called out. And they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, Why did you go fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, No, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Father, I want to thank you for this gathering of people on Monday night. They've come with their cups upturned. And Father, I pray tonight that you would speak into our spirits something that we can take away with us that's useful as we endeavor to serve you in this present-day world in which we live. The challenge is before us, and we are to be different. And I pray that you would help us to understand what that means tonight a little better than maybe when we walked in. Again, Father, I pray for your anointing, and I, I recognize that I, I can't do this without you, and so I pray that you would give me that peculiar anointing that we call unction. Trusting you for it, I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Often in our desire to proclaim biblical truth regarding the spirit-filled life or the selfless life or what we old-timers might call the life of sanctification, we are long sometimes on expectation, short on explanation, and very weak on application. But tonight, with the aid of this Old Testament story and a New Testament Jesus moment, I want us to try to get something that would help us to better flesh out what it really means to be a child of God, especially living in intimacy with Him. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about 
this story, and you know that the Bible is about real people and real events. These are not made-up people. These are not made-up stories. These events really happen as recorded in the Word of God. And you can see, as we read a moment ago, that it was a bloody day in the history of Israel because the Bible tells us there that 42,000 Israelites were slain and their bodies were thrown into the Jordan River. 42,000 Israelites cold-bloodedly stabbed to death. By whom? Other Israelites. The shocking aspect of this story found here in Judges chapter 12 is that everybody in the story is of the same nation, the same race, and the same kindred. The only difference is the tribe from whence they came. And the amazing fact is that this horrible bloodletting is over such an insignificant issue. Tonight I want to tell you a story. We're going to go back and we're going to look at the context of what is going on here in this passage that we read in your hearing just a moment ago. And then I'm going to introduce you to a word that you probably haven't heard before and probably is rarely used in our English vocabulary, the word shibboleth. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and we're going to look at a Jesus moment when he was under pressure and we're going to see how the Savior responded in that moment. So here we go with the story. Let me give you some background. You have to go back into Judges chapter 12 to find out what is going on because you see Jephthah is of the tribe of Gilead. As a matter of fact, his father was Gilead. But because Jephthah's mother was a prostitute, we find that Jephthah was thrown out of the tribe by his half-brothers. And they, in essence, said, you're not going to have any part of this family. You're not going to get any of the inheritance from this family. And so Jephthah left the family in the tribe of Gilead, and he went into the wilderness, and he gathered around himself a band of renegade warriors. Now, a common enemy of Israel has come up to do battle against the Gileadites, and they have no military leader to lead them against them. The Ammonites. And one of the elders suggested, why don't we enlist the services of Jephthah? And so they sent a messenger to Jephthah, asked him to come and be their military leader. And so Jephthah met with the elders. And after thorough discussion of the matter and what they expected and what he would do for them, they agreed. And Jephthah became their military leader. And so Jephthah, we discover as we read the story, tried to avoid battle and conflict with the Ammonites through diplomacy. But they rejected that. And then we find as we read the story that when they realized they were going to have to do battle against the Ammonites, that Jephthah sent word to the Ephraimites, a sister tribe, and asked if they would give military aid to the tribe of Gilead. But for whatever reason, the tribe of Ephraim said, no, we're not going to help you as you go into battle against the Ammonites. Well, under the power of God, the Gileadites went out to do battle against the Ammonites. And in the ensuing battle, the Gileadites conquered the Ammonites. It was a wonderful victory. And now the Gileadites are returning from the battlefield. And the Ephraimite tribe and their soldiers come out against the Gileadites. And they ask the question, why have you gone out to do battle against the Ammonites without asking us to go with you? 
YouTube. And we don't know all of the conversation, but it might have gone something like this. Jephthah might have looked at the Ephraimites and said, well, we did ask you to give us military assistance, but you said no. Now God has given us this marvelous victory. Let's just rejoice. Let's praise God and thank him for the victory over our common enemy. But before you know it, the Ephraimites are angry with the Gileadites, and they begin to call them names. You'll notice what they said. You're renegades from the half-tribe of Manasseh and from Ephraim. And there was this argumentative spirit that erupted there among the Ephraimites, and they began to be a moment of, of tension between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. Anybody understand this? 1989, I finished my pastoral ministry at Calvary Church of the Nazarene in Nashville, Tennessee to return to revival ministry. And my very first road trip was going to be 30 days long involving three different camp meetings in Illinois and Indiana. And so I decided since my son Wes was out of school, he would turn 10 on the road trip, I would take him with me on the road trip. And I would also take his younger brother, Winston with us. He was four years old. So I packed my little 1981 Mercury Lynx automobile to capacity with everything that I thought I would need to occupy the prepubescent minds of these sons of mine. I took a football, a basketball. I took gloves, bats. I took a little television set, hooked a Nintendo game set to it. I just knew that I would be able to occupy them and they would be fine. I took enough clothing to minimize the number of times I'd have to do laundry while we were on the road. But I will confess to this congregation tonight uh, that the next 30 days uh, tested my Christianity to the maximum. (laughs) I just about lost my mind. Every time I turned around, Wesley and Winston were at one another. Uh, We only had one Game Boy. That was the precursor to the DSi and all of the game things that you have today. And so we had a Game Boy game system. I made up my mind. I'm never going to go on another trip with two sons with only one Game Boy. They (laughs) argued over who was going to get to play with it next. And then when we would stop to get gasoline in their little minds, that was automatic permission to get out of the car and go inside the store and buy snacks and so they would go buy snacks while I'm pumping gas and then I'd pay for the gas and the snacks and I can even hear them now these many years later uh, as they would run from the little store uh, they would yell at the top of their lungs shotgun shotgun (laughs) and if you don't know automobile jargon uh, the one who says that first gets to sit in the front seat with dad Uh, and I can remember they argued over that and then we'd get in the car I mean, it's July, and they wanted to keep the windows down, and we had a perfectly good air conditioner in the car, and we would argue about that, and then when we'd have to stay at a motel on the road trip, I made up my mind, I'm going to get a motel that's got a nice big swimming pool, so I can put them in the swimming pool before we go to bed, and they'll just fall.
fall into the bed and go right to sleep before, uh, before we go to the room. And I, I, I made up my mind we we're going to do that. And, and I can remember I did exactly that. Got a motel room one night and let them go swimming. And they swam for a while, brought them back to the room, let them take their showers, put them in their bed over there, not sleeping with me. And I'm over here in my bed and they're over there in their bed. And as I'm about to drift off into this wonderful night of slumber, uh, all of a sudden my rest is interrupted with these words. I don't remember which one it was, Wesley or Winston, but one of them said, Dad, he's touching me. <laughs> Dad, his foot is on my side. Any other parents, grandparents understand this? But as humorous as that is out of my history and ministry, that's kind of what's going on here between the tribes of Gilead and Ephraim. They're actually coming to blows over something that they should have been praising God together for. And I can almost imagine Jephthah as he senses what is about to take place, looking at the Ephraimites and his fellow Gileadites as they're about to come to blows with one another. I can see Jephthah say, wait a minute, fellas. Let's not get upset about this. God has given us this great victory over our common enemy, the Ammonites. And now you're calling us names and you want to argue over this? Let's not do this. Let's build a campfire, have some s'mores, sing kumbaya. Let's not get mad here. But before you know it, there is the clash of steel and people are dying. It's an amazing story between people who should be living in harmony and in unity. It's amazing. Well, let's not be too hard on them, though. Let's not be too hard on them because, you see, after being in the ministry for 50 years and pastoring for a, a good number of those years, I've seen people who've gotten upset in the church over things just as ridiculous. When I was pastoring that church in Nashville, Tennessee, we had a great church. Of course, it wasn't nearly as large as yours, but we had grown to a good size, and we had a wonderful choir. Those were the days when you had choirs, and we had a marvelous choir, about a 30-voice choir. I mean, after all, it was Nashville, Tennessee, a great musical pool to pull from. And so we had all of these people that would come and sing in our choir. And I remember one holiday season, we had a Christmas cantata, and it was wonderful. We rehearsed. We had it down. We were ready to present it, and the night of the presentation, we had the brochures printed up to hand out when the people would come in. It was standing room only. We enjoyed the cantata, praise God, as we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. It was a marvelous time. And the following Sunday, it was back to business as usual. And I looked up and my sound guy wasn't at the soundboard. And I thought, that's unusual. He always tells me if he's not going to be here. But I didn't hear from him that week, and he wasn't there. And so we went back to the soundboard, and we did some presets on it. And we went ahead, and we got through the service without too much difficulty, and I called my sound guy the next day. Uh, his name was Fred. You'll never meet him. Uh, his name was Fred, and I said, Fred, I missed you yesterday. Are you all right? Are you sick, Fred? Oh, no, Pastor. I'm sorry. I should have called you. It's not my style. I should have let you know that I wasn't going to be there. I said, well, that's all right, Fred. I want to make sure that you're okay. He said, thanks so much for the call. He was very pleasant, very kind, and the following Sunday, I came back expecting to see Fred in his normal place. Fred wasn't there called him a second time. Fred, are you sure everything's all right? 
Oh, yeah, Pastor, I'm sorry. I should have called you yesterday. I know I left you in a lurch, and I apologize for that. I'm really sorry about it. I said, that's all right, Fred. I just wanted to make sure you're okay. I'll see you next Sunday. He said, thanks so much for the call, Pastor. And the following Sunday, Fred wasn't there again. This time I got in my car, and I drove to Fred's house. Fred invited me in. He was very kind, very gracious. I said, Fred, I just came over. I need to talk to you about this thing. You've missed three Sundays in a row, and that's unlike you. And I said, Fred, you need the church. You need to be in church on Sunday. And I said, we really do appreciate your skills at the soundboard, and we need you there as well. Fred, is everything all right? Has anything happened at the church that's caused you not to come? Oh, no, Pastor. Everything's fine. I'm all right. Nothing's wrong. Okay, Fred, I just wanted to make sure. Let's have a word of prayer together, and I'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday. And I prayed with Fred, and I left, and the following Sunday, Fred wasn't there. And it became obvious Fred wasn't coming back. <laughs> Several weeks passed. A relative of Fred's walked up to me one Sunday morning before morning service and said, Hey, Pastor, have you ever wondered why Fred's not coming? I said, yeah, I sure am. I said, I scratched my head over that one. That person said, well, pastor, if you have one in your file, if you'll go back and you'll find one of those programs that we put together for the Christmas cantata back over the holidays, if you'll look at that and look down through the list of the people who participated in that cantata, you will discover you left Fred's name out as the sound technician. And because you left his name out, you hurt his feelings so deeply that he'll never be back. And I looked at that dear lady and I said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He's not coming back because we left his name out of the program? I mean, it wasn't like we sat down and put that program together the week before the cantata and somebody sitting around the table said, hey, let's leave Fred's name out and see what he does. amazing to me God doing everything he can to keep us unified as the people of God doing everything that he can to make sure that the work of the kingdom goes forward and then Satan comes along and he does something to create some kind of a negative spirit and he disrupts the work of the kingdom of God and here is Jephthah dealing with this situation between the tribes of Gilead and the tribe of Ephraim it's a horrible horrible thing this clash of steel this killing of people over name calling it's amazing to me. The story goes on because that's not the worst of it. We go on and we discover that after the Gileadites and the Ammonites have come and fought against one another, it's very obvious that the Gileadites win the battle between themselves and the Ephraimite tribe. And so now the Gileadites, the Bible tells us there in Judges chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, that the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? Try and picture this. The fighting has stopped. The Gileadites have won. And the Gileadites have taken charge of the ford of the Jordan River. And you know what a ford is, don't you? It's a shallow place. It's a place where you would cross to the other side of the river 
And so the Gileadites have captured that ford where you would cross over. The Ephraimites that they've done battle with recently live on the other side. And so these Gileadite soldiers are guarding the ford, and here comes an Ephraimite soldier, survivor, to the ford to cross over. And the Ephraimite walks up to the Gileadite soldier guard and says, I'd like to cross over, please. Now remember, Gileadites and Ephraimites, same kindred, same race, same nation. Only difference was the tribe from which they came. No distinguishing characteristics. You couldn't facially and appearance-wise tell the difference between a Gileadite and an Ephraimite for the most part. And this Ephraimite soldier survivor walks up to the Gileadite guard and says, I'd like to cross over. And the Gileadite soldier guard asks the Ephraimite soldier survivor, are you an Ephraimite? Now, I know it's wrong to tell a lie. But if my tribe had just been soundly defeated by the Gileadites, if I'd have been asked that question as an Ephraimite, I'd have probably looked at the Gileadite soldier and said, do I look like an Ephraimite to you? All I want to do is just get home to mama. I just want to get home to mama and the kids. He's trying to get by the Gileadite, even though he is an Ephraimite. And so the Gileadite says to the Ephraimite soldier survivor, all right, if you're not an Ephraimite, prove it. You see, the Gileadites knew something about the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites did not know. The Gileadites knew that they could not pronounce a particular sound. And so the Gileadite soldier guard asked the Ephraimite soldier survivor, all right, if you're not an Ephraimite, prove it. Say, Shiboleth. Shiboleth. And if the Ephraimite said, Siboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, he could not for whatever reason. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but the Ephraimites could not say the S-H sound. So the Ephraimite, in response, said, Sibboleth. And the Bible does, does give us details now. It says, at that moment in time, 42,000 Ephraimites were slain at the fords of the Jordan River. Over what? Shh. Shh. Such a little thing. It's amazing. Shibboleth. It's an interesting word, isn't it? It's not one you've used this week, I don't think. <laughs> it's not commonly used in our English vocabulary. And when I was doing my research on the word, I found that there are many different definitions of the word shibboleth, and there was one that was very relevant to this message tonight. Shibboleth, a provocative rule of measurement. A standard that we create for one another to measure one another. Shibboleth. And again, not meaning to be 
totally negative tonight. We have to be very careful that we in the church don't create shibboleths. That we don't measure one another. I'm reminded of what was stated about this by John Wesley. John Wesley made the statement uh, that he is, he is sick and tired of opinions of every kind. And it's very easy in the church, especially in the church your size, or any church for that matter, uh, to create measuring rods for how we expect people to act and how we expect them to behave. And I've seen shibboleths be created around the church all of my life because, you see, I was reared in the church. I was reared in what was called the Old Pilgrim Holiness Church. Probably most of you don't know that church, but they were very conservative. For me to stand in one of those churches in those days and preach with blue jeans on, I'd be deemed a heretic. Just wasn't done. And I can remember how they would be so conservative about so many things. They, they would have all of these shibboleths about appearance, about how you wore your hair, about uh, makeup and jewelry and all of those things. My dad, one of my favorite dad stories, my dad, as I told you yesterday and Saturday, my dad was a great preacher and my dad was an evangelist and he was holding a revival meeting in one of those very conservative churches in the state of Ohio and he said, I was looking forward to going to that church because it was a great church. They were a high-energy church. By that, I mean they would say amen out loud. Amen. And they would say, praise the Lord. And then he would say, I'm looking forward to going to that church. And he arrived there, and my dad dressed to the nines. I mean, he liked to dress up. He'd wear a nice suit and tie, and he had a little diamond stick pin that would hold his tie in place, and he had cufflinks, and he just really looked nice in the pulpit when he would preach. And, and so he started that revival meeting, and he said, as I was preaching that first night of that revival meeting, the folks just sat there with stone-like expressions on their faces, just staring a hole right through me. And he said, that's unusual. I thought this church was responsive, that they'd say amen out loud and hallelujah and praise the Lord. And he said the second night was identical to the first night. There was no movement. There was no smiling. There was no engaging. There was nothing. And he said, after the second service, a man in the congregation walked up to me and said, Brother Loman, you might not understand this term, but we used it a lot back in those days. He said, the meeting is kind of tight. That means nothing's happening. And my dad said, yes. And I understood that this church had the reputation for being very engaging and saying amen and praise the Lord and helping you preach when you preached your message. And the man said, Brother Loman, I'll tell you what the problem is. And he said, you see that little diamond stick pin holding your tie in place? He said, as you preach, it catches the light here in the sanctuary and it just kind of glitters and sparkles while you're preaching. He said, this is a very, very conservative crowd. And he said, I'll tell you what, Brother Loman, if you get rid of that diamond stick pin, these folks will get in behind you and they'll help you preach. And so the next night, my dad said, I came back to church and I began to preach. And true to that man's word, I began to preach and those folks got in behind me, began to say amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory to God. And he said, it was a wonderful service. And after the service was over, he said, that same man came up to me and said, Brother Loman, I told you, if you'd get rid of that little diamond stick pin, these folks would get in behind you. And my dad said, I appreciate you telling me that, brother, but I need to 
tell you this. I didn't get rid of it. He said, I just moved it down here underneath my coat. They couldn't see it. It's been there all the time. Shibboleths. Shibboleths in the church. It's amazing the things that we create in the negative around the church. I was in a church in Clarkston, Michigan. Wonderful church. They had a praise band like yours, and they had a praise team that would sing. They had stringed instruments as well as brass instruments and the guitars and the drums and everything. And man, they were good. And they were singing and they would praise the Lord and bring us right up to the time of receiving the word of God. And I enjoyed every bit of it. And I remember one night I was standing out there in the foyer and everybody just about had left and I was waiting on the pastor to come and we were going to decide what we were going to do after church. And I remember standing out in the foyer and I noticed there was a lady standing right over there. And she was looking at me. You can see them coming. <laughs> and after a few minutes of studying me, she started walking toward me. Now, when people just really want to talk to you about something and talk to you honestly and engage you and, and just really have a conversation, we don't normally walk up to you like this. But when she started walking toward me, and this is how you know, she started walking toward me kind of like this. And she walked up to me, and she said, Well, preacher, what do you think about the music around here? And the Holy Spirit said to me, Look out. <laughs> and I said, Ma'am, I like music. It's a part of what I do. I have my own particular taste in music that I enjoy listening to when I'm alone. I said, but when it comes to praise and worship, whether we use contemporary music and whether we project the words on a screen or sing it out of a hymn book, I said, that really doesn't matter to me. I said, what matters to me is does it bring me into the presence of God? That wasn't quite the answer she was looking for. <clears throat> but isn't it amazing how people can create shibboleths around the church? I want to give you three freedom principles that you can take with you tonight. Here's the first one. When it comes to the work of the kingdom, when it comes to building the church, when it comes to relationships, I need to warn you, this principle is going to set you free if you will implement it into your life. Are you ready? You don't have to express your opinion about everything. <laughs> Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I mean, you think about that for a minute. If you had to express it, now you can have an opinion about everything. But if you have an opinion about everything, be careful when you express it. Because if you express it, be sure you're knowledgeable in it. Be sure you know what you're talking about. 
if you're going to express the opinion. Had a man in my church, great guy. He was one of my best friends. We'd meet together on Fridays, and we'd talk about the mission and vision of the church. And we were growing, and we needed a new piano. We needed an acoustic piano in our church. And so we put a music committee together to go out and find an acoustic piano, a baby grand piano. And so they came back and presented the proposition to us and everybody on the board but this man who was the treasurer of the board and he was a Sunday school teacher of the adult class, everybody but him was in agreement. And his disagreement was adamant. It became so obvious that I finally realized I'm going to have to talk to him about this. It's beginning to create some negativism and we can't afford that at this time in the church's life. And so I made an appointment with him. And I sat down with him. Like I said, we were friends. I could talk to him. And I, I called him by name. I said, I need to talk to you about the piano thing. I said, because it's very obvious. You're against it. Everybody else is for it. And it's already passed. We're going to buy the piano. I said, I don't understand why you're so against it. And with a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. And I said, there's several reasons why I don't understand why you're against it. And the first one is, you can't sing. And he couldn't. And I said that in a joking way, but it was the truth. I stood beside him on this platform when we'd sing. Men couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I mean, the guy just couldn't sing. He had no knowledge of music. He didn't play an instrument. He didn't sing with the musical groups. He didn't sing in the choir. He had nothing to do with the music in the church. But yet, he was expressing his opinion about something of which he had no working knowledge. Let me tell you how to stop a negative person dead in their tracks in your church. Now, you probably don't have anybody negative in your church, but just let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you how to stop a negative person dead in their tracks. If they come up to you and they begin to spill negativism into your spirit and into your mind, once they're done, just look at them and say this. I don't have an opinion about that. I don't have an opinion about that. I like my church. I love our staff. I love what God's doing around here. And I just don't have an opinion about that. And they may find somebody else to dump on, but they'll know they can't use you as a garbage can. Just say, I don't have an opinion about that. Shibboleths. We create shibboleths not only around the church, but we create shibboleths in the home as well. We create these standards for one another. And when we don't measure up to those standards, then we call each other accountable. And I've gone into homes and I enjoy people. I like fellowship. I like to meet new people. And from time to time, I've been invited into homes and I've enjoyed that kind of fellowship, but I'll tell you this, there have been sometimes I've walked into homes, when I walked over the threshold of the door of that home, it was there, the tension. The husband had to have the final word, or the wife, she was going to get all mad if she didn't have her way, or the kids, they kind of ran the home, and there was all this tension in the home. Somebody had to have the last word about everything, and I'm thinking, man, I'm eating and leaving, and I would eat, <laughs> and I didn't want to be around that. And I would. I'd just say, folks, thanks for having me here. I'll see you at church later on. 
a negative, horrible spirit, people in the home that can't get along, that profess to be Christian because they've created all these shibboleths for one another. A critical spirit, if we're not careful, can creep into the life of any family. Freedom principle number two. Remember the first one? You don't have to express your opinion about everything. Freedom principle number two. It's far more important to be kind than it is to be right. I said that to a friend of mine one time, and he said, but I am right, I am right. I thought, did I just hear what he said? He said, but I am right all the time. And you may be. You may believe in your heart that you're right all the time, but there are some times when you need to be more kind than just establish your rightness about something. Let's finish this. Let's go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we've talked about the story. We've looked at the word shibboleth. Now, let's look at what is happening in John chapter 18. And most of us know the story. We know the setting. We know that Jesus has been praying, and he's prayed that incredible prayer, Father, if it could be, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. And now he's finished praying. He's turned around and seen his disciples. They're asleep. He awakens them, and the Bible says that they finished praying, and with his disciples, he crossed over to the Kidron Valley, and on the other side, there was a garden. He and his disciples went there, and when they went there, we find the soldiers led by Judas coming to apprehend Jesus. Verse 3, so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest. The Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Now look at verse 10. Then Simon, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's an incredible scene. Several things here that are very interesting to me. First of all, I've often wondered when I would read that, why did Peter have a sword? He was a fisherman. And as we noted in one of the services yesterday, we find out here that he wasn't good with the sword. <laughs> because I don't believe that he was just trying to cut Malchus's ear off. I believe he was trying to cut his head off. He was trying to defend Jesus. Why was he trying to defend Jesus? Maybe to back up his boast. He just told Jesus a few hours earlier, these other men may deny you, but not me. I'll go to the dungeon for you. And I often wondered, why did he have a sword? Why did any of them have a sword? 
But then if you go back and you read earlier in the evening, before they ever came to the garden, Jesus just casually said, you might want to take a sword. It's there. I'd never seen it before. And I think he said that so that this would happen so he could do what he did. I don't think he meant it for a defensive weapon of any kind. I think Jesus knew what was going to happen. So look what happens. When Peter struck Malchus, cut off his ear, Jesus reached into the dirt and picked up the ear and put it back on the side of his head. It's the only time in the Bible in all of Jesus' miracles that he reattached a body part. It's the last miracle he will perform before his death. Then notice what he says. Peter, put away your sword. In essence, that's not who we are. We're not about cutting people's ears off. We're not about fighting back. We're not about retaliating. It's interesting to me that Jesus healed his enemy and rebuked his disciple. What would you have done? Well, I know how we are. We'd have probably said, well, Peter, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't a good thing. But Malchus, you shouldn't have been out here either. You got your ear cut off because you came out here. It's your fault too. <laughs> We're pretty good at spreading the blame, aren't we? I preached this message in a church in Michigan. I asked people to respond. However, the Lord laid it upon their heart to respond. And, and later in the revival meeting, at the end of the meeting, we gave opportunity for testimony. And a man in a button-down white Shirt, button-down collar, white shirt, necktie. He stood up back over here. He worked in the automotive industry there in the Detroit area. Found that out after the fact. And he stood up, and this is what he said. He said, the other night, Lane preached that message about putting away your sword. And he said, I'm the kind of guy that just speaks my mind. Let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to have my say, and it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. He said, I'm that way with my family. I'm that way at the job. And he said, the people that work around me know to tread softly around me. And he said, the other night, God's Spirit spoke to me about that. And he said, I came to the altar. And these were his words, and I quote. He said, I asked the Lord to help me keep my sword in my sheath. And then he finished his testimony with these words. Now, I'm asking God to help me get rid of my sword. Put away your sword. We're supposed to be different. We who profess Christianity, we're not supposed to act like the world. We're not supposed to react like the world. We're supposed to be different.
I enjoy telling my dad stories. They keep me connected to him. He's been gone almost 15 years. This happened to my dad, and I'll tell you in closing tonight. My dad started a radio program in 1937. And when my dad was still alive, I was talking to him one day, and I said, Hey, Dad, what's, what are you going to do with that radio program when you go home to be with the Lord? And he said, Well, I guess it'll die with me. I said, what if I feel led to continue producing the program? And my dad responded. I don't mean this in a bad way, but my dad responded, well, if you do that, just don't play me every week like they do those people on the radio who've been dead for years. And I said, okay, dad, I won't do that. I kept my promise. I produced the radio program. It's a weekly program, 30 minutes on a variety of stations across several states. But I play him the last weekend of every month. A few weeks ago, I pulled up on the internet one of the radio stations on a Saturday morning where the program is played, aired. I just listen to it like that from time to time to make sure it's getting on and everything's going well. And I listened to that sermon that day that my dad preached on the program. And he told a story that I'd heard him tell when he was alive. But I didn't remember part of that story that he related on the radio program that Saturday morning as I was listening. This is the story. Dad said, I came in from running some errands one day. And he said, my wife, Elizabeth, said, Harold... There is a phone number by the phone. The person that made the call wants you to return the call. There was no name attached to the phone number. My dad dialed the phone number, and a man came on the other end of the line and said, this is Harold Lohman. I was asked to call this number. And the man said, well, Reverend Lohman, I was afraid that if you knew who it was, you wouldn't return the call. And my dad said, well, sir, I have no reason not to want to return this phone call regardless of who you are. And the man continued and he said, well, Reverend Lohman, I didn't think you'd call because I deliberately lied on you in an effort to do you damage. He said, I don't like the way you preach. You preach against sin too hard. And my dad was a businessman. He owned a funeral home and a flower shop and he had an evangelistic team and he did revivals all over the triad part of North Carolina. So he was well known in the business as well as the religious community. And so this man said, I was in a conversation with several people the other day. An opportunity came up for me to tell a lie on you to hurt you. And my dad said, well, sir, if you've done that, I have no knowledge of it. What can I do for you? And dad said, that man said, Brother Loman, my daughter is at the point of death at Wesley Long Hospital here in Greensboro. She needs blood. And it's a rare blood type. And because you give blood, the people here at the hospital have a record of it. And they told me that you have my daughter's blood type and in it that it's rare, they can't find it. And so they gave me your number. And I've called to ask if you'd give a 
pint of blood, it might save my daughter's life. And my dad said, I'll be to the hospital as soon as I can get there. My dad arrived at West Long Hospital, walked into the emergency room, saw a man there that he did not recognize, walked over to the nurse's station, identified himself, and the nurse said, yes, I know you, Reverend Loman. He said, well, I've come to give blood to a young lady who is in serious condition. And the nurse said, well, let me check your records and take your blood pressure. And she came back and said, Reverend Loman, you just gave blood a couple of weeks ago. I can't take your blood today. It would endanger your own health. He knew a cousin of his that had the same rare blood type. And so he dialed the number of his cousin and he said, Coy, this is Harold. When's the last time you gave blood? And apparently it had been a while since his cousin had given blood. And he said, could you come to the Wesselong Hospital emergency room and give a pint of blood? It might save a life. It might save a soul. And my dad said 30 minutes later, his cousin walked into that emergency room. They took the blood out of his arm, put it in a container, and they took it over and they began to put it back into that young lady's arm. And he said, the father of that young lady stood by me and put his head down on my shoulder and began to weep. And said, Reverend Loman, why would you do this for me? And my dad said, sir, haven't you ever heard of a man by the name of Jesus? And he said, I did this because I believe this is exactly what Jesus would have done. Now, I'd heard that part of the story. But dad continued on the radio that Saturday morning I was listening and I didn't remember this part. He said two weeks later he was holding a revival meeting in that area of Greensboro where he lived and he said in the door one night came that man. He said I preached my message. He said I felt led of the spirit and go to go talk to that man. He said I walked back to where he was standing and said wouldn't you like to come and invite Jesus into your life. He said, Reverend Loman, you think that he could forgive a man like me? And my dad said, man, you're the kind of person he came for. Sure, he'll forgive you. And that man fell on my dad's arm and came down to the altar and gave his heart to Jesus Christ that night. We're supposed to be different. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stories of the Bible that help us learn. Thank you for the example of Jesus that teaches us how to live, how to act. Help us to embrace the freedom principles that you've given to us tonight. I ask it in Jesus' name. I failed to give you the third principle. You remember the first one? You don't have to express your opinion about everything. It's far more important to be kind than it is to be right. Jesus is our shibboleth.
He is our provocative rule of measurement. He is our standard. Everything we do, filtered through him. He's our shibboleth. I don't always know how I'm going to close a service or give an invitation. Every service is different. But tonight, here's how I want to do this. I want to give you the opportunity to... How can I say it? Adopt these principles into your own life. They'll change you. They'll make a difference in your family, your work, your church. To come here tonight and say, Lord, by your grace, I purpose in my heart to take these three freedom principles and make, a, make them a part of who I am because they'll rep represent you and help me to represent you in my own personal life. Help me to flesh out what I believe, what the Bible teaches. I'm going to play some music. You just get up and come as the Lord leads you to come tonight. And by coming, stand, kneel, say, Lord, I want you to help me I commit myself to these three freedom principles. I don't have to express my opinion about everything. Far more important to be kind than it is to be right. And Jesus is my shibboleth, my provocative rule of measurement. This is your time. of life that touch on one or more of these principles and you tell us that we're to be light in this world that we are to be salt we're to flavor this world nowhere can I find in the Bible that says that I have the right to be negative 
have an attitude, mistreat anybody. As a matter of fact, Father, if I read the Bible correctly, it says that I am to pursue holiness of heart and life. And I am to pursue the kind of relationship with you that enables me to live such a life that the world does not change me, doesn't condition me, doesn't make me act like them. And I pray, Father, that as we think about this simple truth tonight, the lesson to be learned but from the story about Gilead and Ephraim and Jephthah and the example offered by Jesus that we will walk out of here in a few minutes remembering I don't have to express my opinion about everything far more important to be kind than it is to be right. And Jesus is truly my shibboleth. May these that are praying around the front of this auditorium, may they commit themselves to these principles. May all of us give thought to what they can do if implemented into our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, as I thought about that sermon, so many times I've carried my sword around, having to be right, especially in my home. I laid my sword down. And I pray that God helped you tonight because he sure helped me. Thank you, Lane. You know how you like that when a preacher preaches and it's not about you? Well, tomorrow night, it's not going to be about me. <laughs> I'm not coming. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're going to take a love offering as we leave tonight. You know, Lane agrees to come by a love offering, and uh, that's really unusual in today's world. You know, he's booked 44 times a year, and he trusts God with a love offering. You know, and I've called some guys up, and I can tell you it's a long ways from a love offering. And... Uh, so I just, if you haven't had an opportunity to give, if you've given and God's laid it on your heart to give a little more tonight as you leave, you can do it at the kiosks. You can write a check to Salem Fields because we'll write one big check to him. Hope it's big. And, uh, and uh, however else you can give. There's other ways you can give. How, you know how it is. Uh, if you're watching online, go online and give because you got a little bit there today too. I hope that the Lord helped you online, those that are watching online. You know, we had th over 300 people uh, in our online venue this past weekend. 
and uh, God is really using that to reach our community. So thank you for being here, and uh, just want you to know that Gay and I love you, and we're just excited about tomorrow night. Be here quarter after six, and we're going to ask Jesus to make that pizza multiply. We're not going to have we're not having pizza tomorrow night. I don't know what we're having. Okay, thank you. Lasagna. Lasagna, all right. Still in the same family, I guess.